Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway and we're recording this at 14 hours GMT on Monday the 6th of April. Our main stories. Austria announces plans to ease its lockdown. Ecuador's vice president apologises after bodies of coronavirus victims are abandoned in the street. And even as some schools reopen, Japan says it will impose a state of emergency in Tokyo. Also in the podcast, scientists use Cold War nuclear tests to work out the age of the world's biggest fish. And a message from New Zealand's Prime Minister. You'll be pleased to know that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. More than 50,000 people have now died from the coronavirus in Europe, but there are some tentative signs of hope. Spain has announced the fourth consecutive fall in its daily fatalities, while Italy has also seen declines in recent days. Now, Austria has announced plans to end its lockdown, starting with the reopening of small shops, if people keep obeying social distancing rules. I appeal to you, dear Austrians, that you continue to stick to the current measures, even if it's hard. If we don't, then it will be impossible to implement the ambitious plan I just presented to you. Our aim is to emerge from this crisis faster than other countries, but it will only work if we are united and everyone does their bit to prevent the worst. Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz. I got the details from our correspondent in Vienna, Bethany Bell. As you heard from Chancellor Sebastian Kurz just there, this is a step-by-step approach which is highly conditional on the rate of infections remaining low and people obeying social distancing rules. But the plan is... Basically, that as of mid-April, after Easter, little shops, shops under 400 square metres, will be allowed to open and also DIY stores and garden centres will be allowed to open with strict um, uh, social distancing rules and um, hygiene and people will have to wear masks in those shops uh, and also they'll have to wear masks on public transport, um, basic uh, face masks. Uh, Then the plan is that on the 1st of May, if everything is going well, all other shops and shopping centres will be allowed to open. Uh, And then, uh, again, all of this will be constantly assessed to see if it's right. People, children who are currently in homeschooling um, will have to continue that until at least the middle of May. Um, but we're told that uh, the final exams, the sort of high school exams, will take place this year, but under strange circumstances. And we're also told that in universities, um, for the rest of the semester, um, everything will still take place digitally with uh, by video conferences. So um, a glimmer of hopes. And Mr. Kurtz said that Austria um, had trying very hard to do this as quickly as possible, but it did really depend on people's cooperation. And why has the outbreak in Austria been less bad than other parts of Europe? I mean, it does share a border with Italy. 
does. And uh, that was one reason why the Austrians decided to move very quickly in imposing a very strict lockdown. And Mr. Kurt said today that um, Austria had acted earlier and more strictly than other countries. And that is why, in his words, we were seeing this results today. Um, it's not an entirely a rosy picture, though. There were outbreaks of ski resorts in Tyrol, which transported cases to Scandinavia and to Germany. And there are, in fact, moves for a lawsuit uh, against the authorities there. Bethany Bell in Vienna. The vice president of Ecuador has apologised after bodies of people who died from the virus were found abandoned in the streets of Guayaquil. In a radio and TV broadcast, Otto Sonnenholzer offered his condolences to relatives of the victims. This week, we have suffered significant damage to our international image. We saw things happen that should never have happened. And for that, as your public servant, I ask for your forgiveness. Our correspondent Matthew Charles is in Ecuador and you may find some of his report upsetting. Mi hermano acaba de fallecer por un problema respiratorio y está aquí tirado fuera de la casa. A man films the body of his brother. He's been left in the gutter along with the rubbish and is covered in a simple white sheet. He's one of the many that have succumbed to coronavirus in Guayaquil, but there's nobody to collect the body and nowhere to take it. The health system here has collapsed. Emergency calls are being ignored and hospitals are turning people away. Mortuaries are overflowing and funeral homes are unable to cope with the demand. This TV news report looks more like a horror film as it shows the streets in Ecuador's largest city lined with bodies. Families have had no option but to leave their loved ones to the elements. Jorge Albuja is a teacher. He's lived in Guayaquil all his life. I am scared. The hardest moment was when I picked up my grandmother who lives in the south of the city. I traveled six kilometers. I saw 12 caskets. I do not can put in words what I feel. Outside an emergency department in the city, this man begs for help. He's brought a seriously ill pensioner for urgent medical attention, but is denied entry to the hospital. The patient, who's struggling to breathe, is left in the back of a truck with nobody to help. Inside the hospital, this video, filmed secretly by medical staff, shows dozens of corpses wrapped in black body bags lining the floors. Above the hospital, vultures circle. They're attracted by the smell of the cadavers. It's a grim and disturbing scene. The city's mayor, Cynthia Viteri, is facing growing criticism. She said in an interview that only the national government and its agencies can remove the bodies. There are strict protocols about this, she told Colombian television. Authorities have announced they'll create a task force for collecting and burying the dead. The country's vice president has moved his office to Guayaquil to deal with the crisis. But many residents are questioning how the health system in their city of 2 million could collapse if the number of deaths from coronavirus is as low as the government believes. Campaigners say the official statistics don't add up and the bodies littered on the streets are proof of that. Billy Navarrete is a human rights defender in the city. 
There's no doubt their numbers are not exact, nor do they reflect the real number of deaths, he says. There's been chaos, imprecision and negligence in how officials have conducted the tests for the virus and in how they've responded to those who've died. Their numbers are simply not reliable. And that's because the government has committed a grave mistake, says Professor Hector Hugo from Guayaquil University. They need to work on projections, he says. In a country where we have little ability to do large-scale testing, the numbers that rely on these tests will only tell part of the picture. Our modelling shows the number of cases to be much higher. The response should be based on these projections. Officials fear that panic could now spread in Guayaquil, the epicentre of Ecuador's outbreak, as many residents, fearing for their lives, may try to flee the city. Matthew Charles reporting from Ecuador. The number of coronavirus cases in Japan has been growing rapidly. Tokyo now has more than a 1,000 infections, double the number a week ago. And so pop stars and comedians have been trying to encourage people to wash their hands. I have a hand up. I have a soap. Well, despite those efforts, the situation in Japan has become so serious that the Prime Minister is to declare a state of emergency in some areas on Tuesday. However, it is a confusing picture because in some parts of the country, schools are reopening for the first time in a month. Our Asia-Pacific editor is Celia Hatton. We're seeing a rise, a sudden spike in cases in two places in Japan, in Tokyo and in Osaka. And the authorities there are really scrambling to find hospital beds. They're pleading with people to stay home. Schools, in particular in Tokyo, have been closed for an additional month. They won't open until May the 6th. However, in other parts of Japan, we're seeing schools are reopening. This week is when the normal uh, Japanese school year begins. And so many schools in Japan today hosted a traditional ceremony to mark the start of the school year. Uh, Students were wearing face masks. They washed their hands as they went into the ceremony location. And for them, school will continue as normal now. So it's really, we're seeing a mixed picture. That's because officials in all parts of Japan, it's been left up to them to decide how they want to respond to this outbreak. And because Japan isn't engaged in mass testing, it's very difficult to know how far the virus has really traveled. And so uh, many places are just deciding that they've had enough. They're, They're going back to normal life. Yeah, Japan has been dealing with the virus for a long time, ever since that cruise ship docked there. Um, And yet tomorrow we're hearing that the, the prime minister could well declare a state of emergency. That's right. This is something uh, that the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been considering for more than a week. He's been quite clear that declaring a state of emergency will give governors in in some prefectures the power to close down businesses, to close down schools. But because Japan has a pacifist constitution ever since World War II, it doesn't give very much power to the government to compel people to stay home. Now, you mentioned testing. Uh, Japan, obviously, an advanced economy. Why has it not done the same amount of testing as some other countries? Well, they certainly have come under a lot of criticism for their lack of testing. At the moment, Japanese officials say they're reserving the limited number of tests they have for those who are vulnerable, those who are at risk. But the Tokyo governor has really come out against this. She is one of the people in the Japanese government who is really urging more action. 
And she's very concerned because so far there seem to be a really high number of young people, people in their 20s and 30s, who are among the confirmed cases. And so that really is a concern in Tokyo at the moment. Celia Hatton. Experts believe COVID-19 emerged when the virus jumped from animals to humans in the Chinese city of Wuhan. But now an animal in a US zoo has become infected. The four-year-old tiger is thought to have contracted the virus from a keeper. The details from Henry Bello. The Malaysian tiger known as Nadia was tested for COVID-19 out of an abundance of caution after she developed a dry cough and lost her appetite last month. Management at the Bronx Zoo in New York believes she was infected by a zookeeper who is asymptomatic and didn't realise they were carrying the virus. The transmission of COVID-19 from humans to animals remains extremely rare and is not well understood. So Nadia will be closely monitored in coming days, along with five other tigers and lions that have also showed symptoms. The sick cats have been isolated within the zoo to stop the disease spreading among other animals, but they are expected to make full recoveries. The Bronx Zoo will share the test results with other zookeepers and global researchers. This is not the first time an animal is believed to have been infected by humans. A pet cat in Belgium and two dogs in Hong Kong have tested positive for low levels of the disease after contact with owners. The Belgium government has since advised people with COVID-19 symptoms to wash their hands before touching their pets. But the World Health Organization and the US Center for Disease Control and Prevention say there is no evidence to suggest the coronavirus can be spread by companion animals or pets to humans. Henry Bello. The source of the original outbreak is thought to be what's known as a wet market in Wuhan. China has now introduced a ban on the consumption of live wildlife. But many campaigners say it doesn't go far enough. For more on that and an explanation of how wet markets work, I heard from Navin Sinkadka, the World Service environment correspondent. This is the place where they sell all kind of meat. So you'd get, say, for example, chicken, pork, even mutton. And then side by side, they sell things like, for example, snakes or civet cats. Remember, civet cats was how we got SARS. Initially from bat into civet cats and from civet cats into humans. All of these wild animals are sold together with these different animals that we, we eat in this part of the world as well. And the fear is that that's how these the virus jumped into one of these wild animals and from there into uh, humans. So pangolins, for instance, pangolins is the, is the prime suspect, although it's not confirmed. They've found that some viruses related to coronavirus, not coronavirus exactly though, but even pangolins are sold like that. And so what are the restrictions now as a result of this latest outbreak in China? So for now, what they've done is there's a total ban on terrestrial wildlife meat. And as a result, well, what we are hearing is for now, they are not selling it. For now. But remember, there was a temporary ban even during SARS outbreak. And the market came back after three or four months. Although this time, hundreds of cases have been investigated by the Chinese authorities and they seem to be a bit serious. But there are loopholes. There are loopholes like it's not just the meat industry. The wildlife products are also used for, for example, fur and pelt and ornaments and not to forget traditional Chinese medicines. They are huge markets. In fact, the fur industry, it, it occupies almost two-thirds of the entire wildlife market. So that's the, that's the reason why wildlife campaigners are worried that these different loopholes can be exploited by unscrupulous dealers to continue selling meat illegally. Given that China has this 
strong centralised authority through the Communist Party, wouldn't it be able to change people's behaviour in order to prevent this kind of disease emerging again? Well, that is why they are going to change. They are going to introduce. Remember, this was just a decision by the Chinese National People's Congress. Now, that thing has to be enshrined in the wildlife protection law so that all the provinces can implement it. But still, what I'm being told is the behavioral change that you're talking about, that we are getting some sense that urban Chinese people are changing in that. But what about rural people? What are, what's happening elsewhere? That's the big question. Will they be able to change that? And again, wildlife campaigners tell me, if you allow thousands and thousands of animals to be kept in captivity like that for fur or for medicines, what will they do with the meat? That's the big question. Navin Sin Kadka. And still to come on the podcast, an app designed by a coronavirus survivor to help people follow social distancing rules. I can do at least something that if wants to you know, like save the world, at least it's going to educate people. Just be aware of what's going on and how they could help each other. As COVID-19 spread, South Korea was the worst affected nation in Asia outside China. At the end of February, it reported more than 900 cases in a day. That figure has now fallen to less than 50. However, government officials like Kim Kang-lip are remaining cautious. Even though the number of new cases dropped by fewer than 50, it's difficult to assess the trend with this one-off figure. We see that the reduced number of tests over the weekend, some 6,000 from the usual 10,000, contributed to the decline in numbers. I heard more about what this means from our correspondent Laura Bicker in Seoul. Well, the last two weeks, over 50% of all the new cases being reported have actually been international arrivals. So people arriving back from either the US or from uh, Europe. So when it comes to how people here are viewing this figure, they're certainly viewing it with cautious optimism. But as you heard, the message from the government remains the same. They want this concerted effort over the next two weeks of so-called social distancing. Now, there's never been a lockdown here. We have had freedom of movement and I feel very guilty even saying that uh, considering we had one of the biggest outbreaks in Asia. But they are asking people to remain that kind of two metres apart, continue working from home because they want to keep the daily figure under 50 if they can. No lockdown, but the country has been relatively successful in keeping cases down and deaths down. How has it been so successful there? Incredible. Right from the moment that I've been covering this, it has been an aggressive approach to tracing and testing. So first of all, tracing using GPS technology on your phone to try to find out who's been in the same area at the same time. Then once you've kind of drawn a ring around what could be the potential outbreak, you get everybody tested. Those who test negative, yes, if especially if they're a healthcare worker, they can go back to work. If you test positive, then you're quarantined. Who have you been in contact with in the last five days, we can check your phone, we can check your bank records, then they find them again and again the same process starts again. They told me five, six weeks ago when I was in Daegu at the hot spot of this outbreak that they would get it under control. I have to say I raised my eyebrows at that time and thought no way but here we are these weeks on with under 50 cases and it does certainly fail with this mass testing that even though there might be other outbreaks to come because 
they're testing for it regularly, perhaps they'll catch it before it becomes a massive outbreak in the city or elsewhere. Laura Becker in Seoul. Now for some other news, and scientists have discovered that the world's biggest fish, whale sharks, can live up to 100 years or more. They were able to solve the long-running puzzle thanks to Cold War-era nuclear tests, as Matt McGrath explained. They've used in the past whale shark vertebrae, parts of their bones, that feature distinct uh, bands on them, like rings on a tree, that actually increase with age, and they've used these to work out how old they have been, roughly. But they haven't been able to work out whether or not those bands come every six months or every year. Now they've used data from uh, the nuclear explosions and nuclear tests that were carried out across many parts of the world in the 1950s and 60s. And what's happened with those explosions is that they produce a carbon isotope a form of carbon called carbon-14. And that's been incorporated into every living thing on the planet since then, and particularly into the bones of creatures, including ourselves. And scientists know how long this isotope takes to decay. So by getting a bone sample and being able to work out the amount of carbon-14 in it, they've been able to accurately date the bones of these sharks for the first time ever. And the one they had, a sample they had, they were able to say was 50 years, but they believe... These can live up to 150 years relatively easily. They believe it's very important to know the ages of these creatures to be able to help with their conservation. They're endangered, and one of the reasons they're endangered is that because people have been allowed to fish for them in some places, not knowing just how slow-growing they are. And when they've tried to fish for them, basically they disappear them all very quickly. So the scientists now, armed with this new information, can make a better case to fisheries around the world to say, look... These creatures are extremely slow-growing, extremely long-lived. Don't fish for them. They're much better as a tourist draw. Divers love to spend time with them, and they believe that this will help them in the fight to preserve this species well into the future. Matt McGrath. Next to the British singer Duffy, who you may remember from her hits Mercy and Warwick Avenue. When I get to Warwick Avenue Duffy shot to fame after winning a Grammy in 2009, but then she seemed to disappear into obscurity. Six weeks ago, she revealed on Instagram that she'd been drugged, raped and held captive by an attacker. Now she's given more details. Here's the BBC's entertainment correspondent, Colin Patterson. Absolutely shocking what I'm about to be saying. She's written a more than 3,000 word account on a new website, DuffyWords.com. She explained she decided to do this because in hiding, in not talking, I was allowing the rape to become a companion. Now, at no stage does she name her attacker, but she says that a decade ago, she was drugged on her birthday at a restaurant. The perpetrator continued to drug her in her own home. The whole ordeal lasted four weeks. She describes how she came round in a car in a foreign country and was taken to a hotel where she was raped in a room by the same person. She says that she could have been disposed of by him and thought about running away to a neighbouring city in this foreign country, but she was afraid that he would call the police reporting her as a missing person and she didn't know what would happen. Duffy says, I do not know how I had the strength to endure those days. I did feel the presence of something that helped me stay alive. Well, what happened next? She flew back to the UK with them, describing how she felt she was in a zombie state flying back to the UK. 
And then once she got back to the UK, she felt her life was in danger from him as he was making veiled threats to kill her. She says, I didn't feel safe to go to the police. I felt if anything went wrong, I would be dead and he would have killed me. I could not risk being manhandled or it being all over the news my, of my danger. And remember, this is someone who in 2008, when she released her debut album, it was the same year as Adele's debut album. Duffy was the bigger star. The following year, she became the first person ever, or the first woman ever, to win three Brit Awards in one year. That's how big she was. In 2010, she released her second album, and then she disappeared. And now we know why this was happening at that time. Colin Patterson. Now back to the coronavirus pandemic and a man who recently recovered from COVID-19 has developed an app to help people around the world follow social distancing guidelines. The 1.5 app, which is still in the testing stage, uses Bluetooth technology to calculate the space between the user and another person carrying a mobile phone. Anna Holligan reports. Whenever someone carrying a mobile device breaches your designated social distance your phone vibrates. The app uses Bluetooth technology to calculate the space between you and them. Renato Cardoso is the developer. It's pretty much analyzing how strong is the signal and try to predict how close that device is from you. And as demonstrated in this simple promotional video, if someone gets too close, the app displays a sad face designed to be shown to diffuse any potential tensions. As a survivor of COVID-19, Renato Cardoso describes this as his passion project. I remember spending like a whole night coughing. I could only cough and cough and cough. I feel there is a hole in my chest. And it's been pretty hard to breathe, uh, fever, sweating. I can do at least something that if one, you know, like save the world, at least it's going to educate people. Just be aware of what's going on and how they could help each other. And that report from the Netherlands by Anna Holligan. Now to finish, some good news for children in New Zealand. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has clarified that the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy are essential workers and so will be exempt from household restrictions. You'll be pleased to know that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. But as you can imagine at this time, of course, they're going to be um, potentially quite busy at home with, with, their, with their family as well and their own bunnies. And so um, I say to the children of New Zealand, if the Easter Bunny doesn't make it to your household, we have to understand that it's a bit difficult at the moment for the bunny to perhaps get everywhere. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And that is all from us for now, but there'll be an updated version of the Global News podcast later. I'm Oliver Conway. Until next time, goodbye. 